1: in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, I talked about the many different computers that appeared in the late 70s and early to mid 80s as the home computer market began to coalesce. But there were numerous contenders, obviously. There were companies like Texas Instruments and Commodore and Tandy, and they had all put forth uh, various computer systems onto the market. And while the computers those and other companies made had an impact, for example, the Commodore 64 was the best-selling computer of all time, ultimately, none of those machines stuck around to define the market. Instead, there were essentially two entities that won out over everyone else in very different ways, and those were Apple and IBM. I'll talk about IBM in an upcoming episode where we'll learn how the company's strategy played out, but in this and the next episode, I'm going to focus on Apple and how it weathered many storms to become the company it is today. I've chatted about Apple in the past, From profiles on Steve Jobs to an overview of the company's history, Uh, this episode's mostly going to focus on what Apple was doing in the 70s and 80s. The next episode will continue through the late 80s and into the 90s, and we'll investigate how Apple was able to outlast competitors despite some extremely shaky corporate moves, and that's putting it lightly. First, let's start at the beginning. The classic story of Apple is that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, both of whom were scamps and computer enthusiasts, dropped out of college to form their own computer company out of Steve Jobs' family's garage. A third partner named Ron Wayne provided some startup cash and wrote the operation manual. He also designed the company's original logo. But the whole Apple was formed inside a garage story? is kind of an oversimplification. According to Wozniak, it was a romanticized version of the real history. Wozniak has said in interviews, uh, specifically in an interview with Bloomberg, that the garage story is mostly just that, a story. It's one of those stories that fits right into the history of Silicon Valley because there are a lot of companies that were said to have emerged from a garage somewhere in the California area. See also Google Amazon, Hewlett Packard, and even Disney, but Apple was not one of them. When Wozniak and Jobs, mainly Wozniak, let's be honest, designed the first Apple computer, the Apple One, they didn't do it in a garage. They did use the garage as kind of a halfway point between their workspace, which was actually Steve Wozniak's bedroom, And the stores where they were planning on selling their computer kit, the Apple One, they would go to the garage, make sure everything worked properly before they would continue on to the stores. At least that's what Wozniak said happened. Most accounts state that Wozniak designed and built the printed circuit board that was the heart and soul of the company's first computer. And if you listened to my last episode, you know the real brain on that circuit board was the 6502 microprocessor from most technologies. Uh, That was a company that Commodore had purchased. Wozniak also decided to design the computer to run BASIC. BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, and it's a high-level programming language that Thomas E. Kurtz and John G. Kimeny created back in 1964 at Dartmouth College. Now, they created it as a teaching tool. They wanted something that would let students build programs without having to create their own customized software. By the time Wozniak was working on the Apple I, it was common practice among many computer designers to hard-code BASIC into the firmware of their machines, into the read-only memory or ROM. Wozniak wanted the Apple I to be much more user-friendly than the binary-based kit computers like the Altair 8800. Wozniak used hexadecimal code to build a BASIC language assembler by hand directly into the Apple I's read-only memory. Now, Ron Wayne was busy working on the operations manual, and Steve Jobs was kind of the hype man. He was marketing this upcoming computer to anyone who would listen. It was 1976 when the two introduced the Apple I computer at a May meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club. This was a hobbyist computer club in California where people were working with various kits that they had ordered and, and assembled computers out of all these different parts. One of the attendees at that meeting was a guy named Paul Terrell, who owned a computer store called The Byte Shop. He made a deal with the Apple partners, and that deal was to build 50 fully assembled computers, which he would then purchase for $500 a piece. A fully assembled computer didn't mean that Apple One had all the bells and whistles. In fact, it didn't have... Really that many bells and whistles at all. It didn't have a display. It didn't have a keyboard. Technically, the Apple I was a bare circuit board housed in a wooden case. The partners took out loans to buy the various components they needed to make 50 of these computers. They had just one day left to pay back those loans when they rolled up to Terrell and delivered the Apple I computers. They weren't as fully assembled as what Terrell was expecting, but he did pay the founders enough for them to be able to pay off those loans. At that stage, Ron Wayne resigned from Apple. He had invested money in the company, and he was worried that Apple was destined to crash in on itself. He returned his 10% share of Apple ownership, and he was paid out the princely sum of $500. Now, in case you're the curious type, on the day I am recording this, Apple's market capitalization value is approximately $854.16 billion, with a B. So 10% of that company would be essentially about $85 billion. He got out for 500 But of course, there was no way to know back then what would happen with Apple, and there were plenty of times between Apple's founding and today when it seemed like the company was on the verge of bankruptcy, and sometimes seemed was being too generous. It really was on the verge of bankruptcy. Apple would go on to sell Apple One kits for $666.66, That price was likely arrived at not just because it represented more money than it cost to build the machines, but also because both Jobs and Wozniak were known to have a mischievous sense of humor. Though, there is another story that said Steve Jobs originally wanted to sell the Apple One for $777. Wozniak objected, saying that that was too much to charge for the computer he was building. He said, that's that's overcharging people. So he countered with the $666 figure, saying he didn't do it to be cheeky. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to choose the number of the beast to be the price of this computer. Rather, he just took 777 and he subtracted a one from each of those digits, and that's how he arrived at his uh, price, according to Wozniak. While Jobs and Wozniak worked on selling and delivering Apple One kits, Wozniak was also looking ahead at what should be the company's next step. He wanted to create a computer that had everything a person would need to get started. This would help push computers out of the realm of just the dedicated hobbyist. That's a very small slice of the population. They had time and interest to learn how computers work, and so they were willing to take something that was bare bones and go the rest of the way to make it something that was useful. That's not true with the general public. They need something that's more robust, more user-friendly. So to do this, the computer had to contain all the components necessary to work. He began to design the Apple II. The Apple II used the first Apple computer design as its foundation. It had the same MOS Technology 6502 microprocessor running at the same 1MHz clock speed. It had basic, hard-coded into the Apple II's read-only memory, but it also had stuff the original Apple computer lacked, like a plastic case. Steve Jobs concentrated on making the Apple II look aesthetically pleasing, while Wozniak concerned himself with the computer's innards. Jobs just wanted to make sure that it looked like a product that people would feel compelled to buy. He wanted it to be an appliance, something that would be a, a ready adoption into the standard American home, something akin to like a refrigerator or a washing machine. It also had a video connector that would let users link the Apple II to a television and use that as a monitor with such a TV who could display up to 16 colors at low resolution. And by low resolution, I mean really low. 40 by 48 pixels. At high resolution, which was just 280 pixels by 192 pixels, it could only display six fixed colors. It could also produce sound. And a lot of those early computers were silent. They didn't have anything that could produce sound. The Apple II entry came with four kilobytes of RAM. So if you were buying the basic Apple II computer, four kilobytes of random access memory was what you got. You could, however, buy versions of the Apple II that had up to 64 kilobytes of random access memory. It had expansion slots, eight of them, in fact, but the first one was reserved for upgrades to the computer's RAM or ROM. If you were a pure hobbyist, you could even opt to buy the computer's circuit board as a standalone product. You would then have to supply the case, the keyboard, the display, and other peripherals all on your own. The base model of a fully assembled Apple II at four kilobytes of RAM was $1,298 when it hit store shelves. The 48 kilobyte RAM version sold for $2,638, and if you went bare bones with the circuit board, that sets you back $598 for the four kilobyte RAM version. The computer debuted in April 1977, almost a year after the founding of the company, which was on April Fool's Day of 1976. And then it would go on sale a little bit later in 77. A couple of months after that, Apple signed a big deal with a company that would be both an ally and a competitor over the years. And that company was Microsoft. The deal was that Apple could use Microsoft's software called AppleSoft Basic. The licensing agreement term was eight years and cost Apple $21,000. Now the reason for the switch to Apple Soft Basic was that the integer BASIC that Wozniak had designed for the Apple II had limitations. It didn't have support for floating-point math, which meant that you could have, well, you had restrictions, essentially, on what you could program on the Apple II. Now, Wozniak's reasoning originally for using integer BASIC was, one, it was easier to program for or to code for, and thus it would take less time to actually build into the Apple II. But also, he was thinking of the Apple II as a computer for games and for programming games. And at that time, games didn't require sophisticated operations. So there was no need to go more complicated because what Wozniak was thinking was that this Apple II was going to be meant for less uh, ambitious projects. Wozniak at that time was already working on other technologies that would be released in 1978. He didn't have time to develop a new dialect of BASIC, and so they decided to go with Microsoft's solution. Apple employee Randy Wiginton, who was a teenager at the time, helped adapt the Microsoft-designed AppleSoft for the Apple II. He added in some additional features in the process. Wiginton would go on to become one of the more important people in the Macintosh development team a few years later. Upon launch, the external media device available for the Apple II was a cassette drive. This used cassettes with magnetic tape to store information. In 1978, Apple would introduce the Disk II, or Disk, close bracket, open bracket, because they used the little brackets as Roman numerals at those times. I don't know how you're supposed to say that apart from Disk II. It was a five and a quarter inch disk drive, if you guys remember those. A lot of save icons still look like disks, so maybe you know what a five and a quarter inch disc looks like. And Apple II's new operating system was DOS 3.1. Just kidding, it's DOS. DOS 3.1. DOS, by the way, stands for Disk Operating System. And DOS is a generic term. It's not it's not something it doesn't mean that all operating systems called DOS are related. In fact, The Apple version of DOS is not related to MS-DOS or IBM PC-DOS. A computer is only useful if you can buy or build good software for it. The Apple II was fortunate in that it was the first home computing platform that could support a computer program called VisiCalc. So visual calculation, if you, th- if you, or vision calculation, if you prefer. This was a spreadsheet program capable of running basic operations on figures entered into the spreadsheet. So for the first time, a personal computer could run software that small businesses and accountants depended upon to do their work. It could speed up a laborious process considerably, and it was far more affordable than the computers intended for big enterprises, which were routinely around $10,000. The Apple II became a popular computer, not just because people were adopting it for their home, but as a business machine for various companies, as well as an educational tool in schools. It was pretty much perfectly positioned for its time. In 1977, Apple II sales hit only $770,000. Remember, it didn't launch until the uh, second half of 1977. But they they sold $770,000 worth of units. The following year, Wozniak launched the Disk 2. That peripheral had a price tag of $498, which was actually much lower than a lot of other disk drives that were hitting the market at that time. And Apple's sales skyrocketed. They were boosted by the components that were being released, like the Disk 2, as well as the killer app VisiCalc. And by skyrocketed, I mean that their sales increased more than tenfold. In 1978, the company racked up $7.9 million in sales. So they went from $770,000 in 77 to $7.9 million in 78. That gave Apple a very strong position in the home computer market as other machines like the Commodore PET, the Atari 400 and the Atari 800 machines, and the TRS-80 were all vying for a spot. But Apple's position was not yet guaranteed. I'll tell you a little bit more about this story in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. The success of the Apple II encouraged Wozniak and Jobs, but then something happened that set the two at odds with one another. Jobs had seen that Visicalc really propelled sales of the Apple II, and it turned the Apple II into a must-have computer for anyone who needed an easier way to perform accounting and bookkeeping tasks. Wozniak had designed the Apple II originally as a machine upon which you could program games and do some simple software. But what if Apple went after the business market on purpose instead of just kind of accidentally falling upon it? That was a big move from a corporate point of view. IBM had a dominant position in that realm. The company had yet to enter into the home computer market, but it definitely had a huge presence in business machines. I mean, that's what part of IBM stands for right? Business machines? Jobs saw this as a chance to push Apple into the same league as IBM, and he began to lead work on the Apple III computer. Unlike the previous Apple computers, This one was intended to be a business machine first and foremost. And according to Wozniak, the other big difference between the Apple III and the previous two computers that Wozniak had designed was that marketing was in charge of the design process rather than engineering. It was a marketing-driven product, not an engineering-driven product. Wozniak said this marketing-focused approach created frustrations among the development team, particularly when they were given seemingly impossible tasks. One of those tasks was to design a computer with a form factor that was literally too small to fit all the necessary components inside it. This was not a simple error on the part of marketing. It was an understandable, though preventable, mistake. At the time, teams in Apple were working on the Apple III. The FCC was creating a new set of standards that computers were going to have to follow with regard to radio frequency emissions. Without those standards codified without them actually set. Apple designers couldn't be sure that the computer they were designing was actually going to meet those standards. So there was a danger that they could create a computer that would not meet FCC standards, and then it would be recalled, and that would be a huge waste of time, energy, and money. So they decided they were going to make the case out of aluminum, and that would help block any radio frequency emissions and avoid problems further down the line. It also would make the computer incredibly heavy. The big problem was they settled on the case size and shape based off the engineer's list of requirements early in the process. So the engineers get a list of requests saying, we want the computer to be able to do X, Y, and Z. The engineers look at the requests and they say, all right, in order to do X, Y, and Z, these are the components that are going to have to go into the computer. Here's the size that we're going to need to work inside. And then you have the case folks saying, all right, well, we're going to, design a case that is of this size, these dimensions, and then we're going to get started. And once you go over to get the uh, the finalization of the chassis and you cast the mold for the case, you're kind of committed because that's a fairly expensive process all in itself. And if you go back to the drawing board, you've wasted all that time and money. So once you've cast the mold, you're pretty much stuck with the form factor you've chosen. The other problem was that the management, marketing, was looking at what the computer was going to be able to do and said, you know what would be great if it could also do A, B, and C in addition to X, Y, and Z. And then the developers would say, but you told us you wanted X, Y, and Z, and that's what we told the people who are making the case. And so the case is going to fit X, Y, and Z, but it can't fit X, Y, and Z and A, B, and C. And then marketing would say, make it fit. And then developers would start to sweat bullets. This is called feature creep in general. The idea that features keep on creeping into the design of a product. It doesn't have to be a computer. It could be literally any product. Feature creep is a terrible thing to have happen to you when you're working on one of these projects if you are not the one dictating feature creep. If you're the one dictating it, then you just wonder why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a problem? Come on, just add it. But if you're actually the person who's trying to execute this, it's a huge problem because every feature that's added creates more complications. In this case, literally in this case, the complication was that the components were taking up way too much space. They were getting crammed together. In addition to that, Steve Jobs had a specific design that he wanted that was really going to cause a problem, which was that he did not want there to be a fan inside this computer to dissipate heat. Uh, The story goes that he felt that the fans were too noisy and inelegant, and they kind of violated his design principles of making a computer an appliance. So Wozniak and several of his team began to feel that Jobs' ideas stressed form over function to a point that was untenable. And later, Wozniak would say the Apple III had a 100% failure rate out in the field, because of concessions that were made in order to meet the requirements that marketing had put down, but that were not good engineering decisions. This was not great. Apple did announce the Apple 3 in May 1980 during the National Computer Conference, so they had pretty much committed themselves at that point. The computers would eventually go on sale in the fall of 1980. So let's talk about some of the specs of the Apple III and then talk about some of the problems that the Apple III suffered. Uh, On paper, the Apple III sounded great. It had a 6502-compatible microprocessor, so the same style of microprocessor as the Apple I and the Apple II. Uh this one, however, was made by Cynertech, not by most technologies, but still it was a compatible processor. It's in that same general family. Uh the processor had a clock speed of two megahertz, so essentially double what the Apple II was capable of doing. The computer shipped with 128 kilobytes of RAM as the standard amount of memory that was expandable all the way up to 512 kilobytes. So that was great because with more memory you can run more sophisticated applications and programs. It had an internal five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive. This was the first of Apple's computers to have an incorporated drive built directly into the case. So it wasn't an external drive that sat next to the CPU unit. It was actually incorporated into the case itself, which, you know, you often will see with PCs these days if they still have a floppy disk drive or an optical drive. They're usually built into the main case. But for a while, that was not what you would find with home computers. It would find an external drive that you would connect via cables to your CPU. Um, But this one had it built into the case. So it put it all into a nice form factor. Unlike earlier computers, the Apple III had a separate keyboard from the main computer chassis. So that would eventually become a standard characteristic for many computers moving forward. But at the time, it was pretty standard to have the keyboard actually built into the case. So while the drives were frequently external, the keyboard was incorporated directly into the CPU case for a lot of early computers. In fact, a lot of Apple's computers that followed this one would also have the keyboard built directly into the chassis. But for this one, it was separate. The Apple III also had a brand new operating system called Apple SOS. SOS stood for Sophisticated Operating System, but perhaps given the problems Apple III encountered the traditional interpretation of the letters SOS being used as a call for help would be more appropriate. While Wozniak criticized the hardware of the Apple III, he actually praised the operating system. He later would declare that it was the best OS on any microcomputer system at that time. One problem the SOS had was that it was not backwards compatible with the Apple II system. So that meant you could not run Apple II software natively on the Apple III. You could do it if you used an Apple DOS boot disk in the Apple III. So you could actually run a program on the Apple III that would essentially emulate Apple II. Unfortunately, the, the demands that Steve Jobs and his marketing team had placed on the design team resulted in a pretty unreliable computer. Lots of people reported problems with the machines. According to Wozniak, 100% of them did. For one thing, these machines got really hot Now, that's not a big surprise. The case was made of aluminum. There was no fan in there. The components were crammed together. So they would heat up inside these cases, and eventually that heat would be enough to warp the circuitry. Sometimes chips would become unseated from their positions on the circuit board. And according to some accounts, a common way to fix this problem was to physically lift the computer several inches off a desk or table and then drop it. And that would reseat the chips. I believe that falls under the general category of what we call percussive maintenance. In other words, when it breaks, you hit it and hope that it works again. The Apple III quickly earned a reputation for being unreliable. Can't imagine why. This had a huge impact on sales. A negative one, that is. And even though Apple would revise the design and release a couple of upgraded versions later on, the Apple III never got much momentum in the marketplace. Apple had to continue to depend upon the Apple II platform sales to keep things going. In the early 1980s, the Apple II sustained the company while other computers were getting a better foothold in the market. So just as Apple had eyed IBM's position in the corporate world, IBM was now looking at home computers as a possible market. In 1981, IBM released the personal computer, or PC. Now that term had been around before IBM used it, And we often will use personal computer as sort of a generic category for all computers meant for home use. But at the time, it was very much the domain of IBM. So when you said PC, you meant an IBM machine. And for years later, if you said PC, you meant an IBM-compatible machine. And more specifically, you meant something that was running either MS-DOS or, later on, Microsoft Windows. I'll talk more about the PC in an upcoming episode of Tech Stuff when we cover IBM's approach to the market. In 1982, Commodore launched the Commodore 64 home computer, and that machine would go on to be the best-selling computer of all time. So Apple had a great head start with the Apple II, but it was in danger of becoming irrelevant Excuse me, as other companies were putting up challengers to the Apple II platform, and to make matters worse... Around this time, Apple had to start playing whack-a-mole with various companies that were offering up clones of the Apple II computer. Apple chose not to license its designs, including both its software and its hardware. They had made this decision that all Apple products were to come from Apple itself, not third parties offering up copies of the hardware or the official Apple software. But of course, that didn't stop companies from trying to do that anyway. Some of them made blatant copies of the Apple hardware. They were literally opening up Apple II computers and copying the design as closely as they possibly could. Other companies tried to accomplish the same result through reverse engineering, so they weren't opening up an Apple computer and trying to use the exact same components, they were studying how the Apple II worked and trying to figure out how to make a machine that worked exactly like the Apple II, thus creating a semi-plausible denial that they had copied Apple's proprietary technology. One of the companies that did this was called Franklin Computer Corporation. That created an Apple II clone called the Franklin Ace that ended up being pretty popular. Uh, Apple sued the Franklin Computer Corporation, and the U.S. court would ultimately rule in favor of Apple, which was a landmark decision because it established that computer software, including a computer's operating system and read-only memory firmware, could be protected by copyright. The Franklin Ace was introduced in 1982, and Apple was eventually able to force the company to stop selling the clone devices in 1988, six years later. So it was an important victory, but perhaps one that happened a bit too late to be of much help to Apple. There were numerous other Apple clones on the market. In fact, some estimations state that there were about 200 different clones of the Apple II machines uh, and all of its descendants. So not just Apple II, but Apple IIe, Apple IIc, Apple IIgs, etc. Uh, The Apple was not able to sue all of these companies. One of them, the Laser 128, was actually a reverse engineered version of Apple's software, so, or in hardware. It didn't copy it. It was reverse engineered, which eventually made it determined to be a legal clone of the Apple II. And a lot of the clones that were illegal were in other countries, which made it tricky for Apple to do anything about it. Ultimately, the clones were eating into Apple's sales for the Apple II platform, and the company decided it needed to do something new. So, what was next? In 1983, Apple launched two new computers. One was an update of the Apple II model called the Apple IIe. I had one of those when I was a kid. The other was an experimental high-end computer called the Lisa. But let's start with Apple IIe. When the Apple IIe debuted in January 1983, no one could predict it was going to become one of the most successful computers of all time. Internally, you wouldn't guess that it would do so well because it had the exact same microprocessor that both the Apple I and Apple II had. That would be that 6502. And it was running at that 1 megahertz clock speed, so it wasn't going any faster, really. The Apple IIe did get an operating system update, so it was running on a new system called ProDOS, which was evolved from that Apple III SOS operating system. It had 32 kilobytes of read-only memory, upon which AppleSoft Basic was burned, and it had 64 kilobytes of RAM that was upgradable to 128 kilobytes using an 80-column card. Later, you could get third-party expansions that would allow the Apple IIe to have several megabytes of RAM, which would make it a really versatile machine for lots of different projects. This was part of the reason the Apple IIe was able to remain relevant, despite relying on a CPU that was more than five years old when the Apple IIe launched. The IIe introduced another new feature in Apple products. Get ready for this. You could type letters in lowercase. Yeah, until the Apple IIe, you were restricted to uppercase letters, but now you had a Shift and a caps lock key on the Apple IIe keyboard. The Apple IIe could also support color displays, though I remember the one we had when I was a kid was a monochromatic display because I remember it being all green. The Apple IIe would get some enhancements later on in its life cycle. If you combine the original IIe with the enhanced version that came later, the computer remained in production at Apple for a decade. That's pretty incredible. Even as the company pushed forward with other products, the Apple II line remained a steady source of revenue. It was also a bit of a sore spot for Wozniak because he recognized how much of Apple's success depended upon the workhorse that was the Apple II product line. But he felt that the team's on those projects were regularly overlooked in corporate meetings and messaging. Instead, Wozniak felt the company's more experimental and often less successful ventures were elevated over the teams responsible for providing the actual sales figures. Wozniak would eventually leave Apple, not just because of these misgivings, but also because he was severely injured in an airplane crash, and decided he would rather work on engineering products than being some sort of manager. By June 1983, Apple had manufactured the one millionth Apple II computer. That's a big number. But remember that Commodore 64 ultimately sold 17 million units. So you just want to keep things in perspective. The other computer I mentioned a minute ago was the Lisa. This machine was another victim of design by committee and also a victim of future creep. Steve Jobs wanted to create a powerful computer specifically with educational institutions in mind. He named the project after his daughter, but throughout the design phase, the computer kept getting more complicated. This also made it more expensive. By the time the Lisa was ready to debut in 1983, the price tag hit an astronomical $9,995. This was in 1983, so... If we adjust for inflation, that would mean the computer would cost approximately $25,450 in today's money. For that price, you better be able to ride the computer to work and back. Obviously, that put Lisa outside the realm of personal computers, unless you're a millionaire. So I'm not going to dwell on the Lisa here because that's not the focus of this show, but The important thing was it did pull focus away from the home computer market. Apple teams were being dedicated to this project that was for something that wasn't going to be for the, the average consumer. Apple was seeing a lot of success in that market, and Wozniak felt that it was a mistake to look at other areas. It was also a black mark against Steve Jobs because... You know, he had had two failures in a row. The Apple three was something that he was really behind and that didn't succeed. And the Lisa was a colossal failure. So it was two strikes against him in a row. Now a quick word on leadership at Apple. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were both new to the business scene when they formed the Apple company. And the first CEO of Apple was brought in from outside. His name was Michael Scott no relation to Dunder Mifflin, and he served as CEO from 1977 to 1981. Scott was a controversial leader. In 1981, on a day that became known as Black Wednesday, he fired half of the Apple II team, saying that he believed their jobs were redundant. He was pretty quickly removed as CEO after that, and then Mike Markula, who was an early investor in Apple and gets the credit for being the third Apple employee, took over the role. He would serve as CEO until 1983, but then would join the board of directors as chairman and stay on until 1997. More on him in a little bit. In 1983, the former CEO of PepsiCo, John Scully, joined Apple. He had to deal with the fallout from Lisa, but he was also at Apple while another project was nearing completion. This project would ultimately define the future for Apple. It was a project that Apple developers had been working on since the late 1970s, and it was called Macintosh. I'll tell you more about that in just a second, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
1: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're gonna learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.
0: Now, we're going to talk about Macintosh, but it's hard to trace the actual origins of the Macintosh project, as finding the exact moment to say, here's the beginning, is next to impossible. There were talks of creating an innovative machine while the Apple II was still in development, and even when it was uh launching. There were talks about what's going to come next. Those discussions were energized after Steve Jobs and some other Apple folks visited the Xerox Park facility. When I did the Xerox series, I talked about this. Uh, Steve Jobs and his team got a chance to see the innovations Xerox had been more or less sitting on since 1973. That included a graphic user interface, or GUI, G-U-I, and the computer mouse, although I should also point out the computer mouse did not come out of Park itself. Uh, Xerox essentially acquired the computer mouse, but that's a discussion for a different episode. The talks with an Apple, coupled with these concepts of a GUI-based operating system and a computer mouse input device, led to a couple of big projects within the company. One of those was LISA, the failed educational computer I mentioned earlier, and the other was the Macintosh. So the Macintosh was a project that executives nearly scrapped on multiple occasions. At one point, the team on the project had only four people on it. They had to regularly argue for the project's survival. Jeff Raskin was the chief champion of the Macintosh in the early stages. He was the lead voice of the project until 1981 when Steve Jobs would join the Macintosh team. So Jobs had been booted from the Lisa project in 1981 after team members were complaining to the CEO. They were saying that Steve Jobs' demands were unreasonable. He was getting uh, really uh, interfering with their work. And moreover, the whole The whole process was untenable. It was, it was making it impossible for them to do their jobs. So they said that because of Jobs' involvement, the Lisa project was suffering from feature bloat, including what was then a massive and massively expensive amount of RAM at one whole megabyte. At the time, that was a whole bunch. And so executive leadership stepped in and removed Jobs from the Lisa project, and then he migrated over to Macintosh, and he brought some of the developers of Lisa along with him. Now, that caused some friction in the Macintosh team, but many on that project credit Jobs with providing some valuable insight. First, he was a genius when it came to making a user-friendly physical form factor, The Macintosh design avoided the mistakes of Lisa. Jobs thought the Macintosh was a work of art, and as such, he arranged for the entire design team to sign the case mold for the Macintosh in 1982. The mold was used for nearly all Macintosh computer cases until 1986. So, if you bought a Macintosh from that era, and you opened up the case and looked inside, you would be able to see the signatures of the design team on the inside of that case. But Jobs also placed some tough restrictions on the project. One was that he demanded the original Macintosh ship with no more than 128 kilobytes of RAM. Memory was really expensive, and Jobs did not want to see the price tag of the Macintosh balloon the way Lisa's did. And the original design team of the Macintosh actually wanted the price to be even lower. They were hoping to keep it at around $1,000. Steve Jobs had already added in features that was going to make that impossible, but he did not want it to run away from him like Lisa. This memory restriction was also really hard to work with because the graphic user interface required a lot of computer memory just to function, which meant if you executed a command, there was only a limited amount of memory left over to handle the job. In fact, if you wanted to just copy one floppy disk's contents onto a second blank floppy disk, you'd actually have to switch the two disks out multiple times and would take several minutes to complete the task because there just wasn't enough space in the computer's memory to handle all of the operation. The Macintosh did not use a 6502 microprocessor the way the earlier Apple computers had. It relied on a Motorola 68000 chip, 68000, and it had a 7.83 MHz clock speed. It also had a monochromatic screen with the resolution of 512 by 342. Steve Jobs wanted to go monochromatic because you could go higher resolution to make the, everything on the screen look more crisp and so he didn't want to incorporate color because he felt that that would compromise on resolution. The Macintosh featured several ports for peripherals, and it shipped with a computer mouse, and it launched in January 1984 with a big marketing campaign to differentiate it from what Apple claimed were the boring limited computers like the IBM models, and it cost $2,495 on launch. Within that same year, Apple would release an updated version of the Mac with 512 kilobytes of memory. This was done in defiance of Steve Jobs' insistence to keep memory down to limit the cost. In fact, Apple would end up marketing this new Macintosh with a campaign that alluded to the fact that the designers made these upgrades without the consent of leadership. But these episodes are meant to focus on how Apple got its... Position In the marketplace, the Apple II had been a huge success, but the computers following it had not done so well. The Apple III was a technical and commercial failure. The Lisa was incredibly expensive and had very few interested parties willing to pony up the cash for what appeared to be an experimental system. You could call that a complete flop. The Apple IIe was doing well, but it was essentially an Apple II with a few minor enhancements, and the company couldn't place all its bets on a rapidly aging platform. So could the Macintosh save the company? Well, that was the initial hope. Apple was putting forth a lot of effort to make Macintosh a success. The design included many proprietary components to make it more difficult to clone the Macintosh than the Apple II platform. The advertising campaign was more than a little ostentatious, with a famous ad shown during the Super Bowl. That commercial compared the established computers in the workplace—in other words, IBM machines— as Big Brother in an Orwellian-like environment. The Macintosh was poised to break free of the shackles, or something— The commercial was a big hit. It was directed by Ridley Scott of Hollywood fame, but would the commercial move units? Would it boost sales so that Apple could wean itself off of the Apple II platform and move into its next phase as a company? When the Macintosh was still in the planning stages in the late 70s, Apple had high hopes for the platform. In fact, initial projections in a business plan dating to 1981 said that Apple was going to try and sell 2.2 million Macintosh computers between 1982 and 1985. That would be about 47,000 machines a month. Obviously, that was not going to happen, because project delays and feature creep, as well as Steve Jobs' general involvement, had delayed the release of the Macintosh to 1984. That meant Apple had to write off two years of sales from its initial projections. Further, after hot sales when the Macintosh first debuted, the figures slowed down considerably to 5,000 units per month. Apple was falling far short of those optimistic projections that the company had made in 1981. Part of the problem was the price. That was a bit of it. But part of the problem was also that the there was just not any software for the Macintosh. I mean, the, the, the GUI interface was taking up a lot of RAM. The cost of the computer was high. But both of those were problems that you could probably get around if there were stuff to do on the Macintosh. There was very limited programming. Apple offered up the MacWrite program, that was kind of a word processing program, and there was an art program called MacPaint, and then there were a few other applications, but that was it. Apple II software was not compatible with the Macintosh platform, and so while the IBM computers on the market might not have been as user-friendly as the Macintosh, and they might not have had a graphic user interface the way the Macintosh did, they might not have had a useful input device like the mouse They did have a very large software library, which meant you could do a lot more stuff on an IBM-compatible computer than you could on a Macintosh. The lackluster sales of the first Macintosh created severe tension within Apple, particularly between the CEO John Scully and Steve Jobs. By 1985, those tensions had reached a point of no return. Scully removed Jobs from the Macintosh team, and they'd been struggling to meet Jobs' expectations while delivering upon what they thought would be a good computer well-suited for its intended market. Jobs was pushed off to a remote part of the company's offices, and he was left there. He went to the board to pr- protest this. He said, Hey, do you know what the CEO is doing? You see what he's doing here? He's he's removing me from my, my duties. I'm, I've got nothing to do. The board, which included Mike Marcula, sided with Scully and said... Yeah, but you're kind of part of the problem, so sorry? What happened next is a matter of some dispute. Ultimately, what matters is Jobs and Apple parted company at this point. Now, some say that Jobs quit. Jobs said that he had been fired. Either way, the co-founder was out of the company. Wozniak was also out after his airplane accident and his general disagreements with the direction of the company. So at this point, Apple is a company that has precisely one or you could argue, one and a half successes under its belt. And that would be the Apple II platform and the Apple IIe computer. But another computer came out around the same time as the Macintosh. And the Macintosh itself wasn't a lost cause, obviously. So in the next episode, I'll talk about how Apple carried on during this era, how it nearly sunk under unsteady leadership, and how it was able to come back from the brink of bankruptcy. And then in the Next episode after that, we'll take a look at IBM's journey to the home computer market and how it took a very different course. If you guys have suggestions for future topics for tech stuff, get in touch with me and let me know what they are. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter using the handle h s w. Join us on Instagram. Follow us. You can see all sorts of behind-the-scenes goodies back there. And also, if you want to watch me record this show live, go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. There's a schedule there. It tells you when I record. It's typically on Wednesdays and Fridays. You can watch me in the studio and even join a chat room and say funny things. To me, or serious things if you like. You know, whatever floats your boat, really. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: If you dare.
1: Zumo Play.